I don't know what to do about Professor Deborah Dashmore because the bio is like a page long. And there's really nothing I want to cut, but I'm going to have to just cut a bit. You, I gave you a really good bio in the materials that you should read, and I'll say a few words. So we spend our time on the program and not the bio. Professor Deborah Dashmore is the Frederick C.L. Heatwell? Heatwell, Professor of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan, where my nephew, yeah. And my nephew just matriculated there. He'll be starting in the fall. I will suggest he take one or more of your classes as well. She's a child of New York City. Anybody else from New York here? Are you, look at your, there are your children of New York City. Um, she was born to Irene Golden Dash, who, who in her later years became professor of English, and Martin Dash, a greeting card publisher. She shared her city upbringing with her younger sister, Dina. Indeed, the city, along with its schools, became her classroom. She left New York to study history at Brandeis University. Any Brandeis grads in the room? Oh. Oh, first class over there. Returning to New York City, she pursued graduate studies in American and Jewish history at Columbia University, where she completed her PhD. And after a brief stint teaching at Montclair State College, she taught at Vassar College. And then, um, then you made your way over to University of Michigan. Is that correct? OK. She has held a uh, Fulbright Fellowship for Senior Scholars at the Hebrew University, a Skirbel Visiting Fellowship at the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, a Center for Judaic Studies Fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Pew Fellowship at Yale University. She has received grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Mellon Foundation, and the Litauer Foundation. In 2001, she was awarded an honorary Doctor of Human, Humane Letters by the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Both personally and through her writings, Deborah Dashmore has played a significant role in the establishment of American Jewish history as a recognized field in both American and Jewish history. Please join me in welcoming Professor De Deborah Dashmore to Orange County. So, so that's a really fantastic introduction. I don't think I've ever had such a good one. Um, and I, pardon? You say it's all your posts, but I don't No, I do not. Um, because you're the only ones who, who mentioned uh, my family. And indeed, um, the family piece is, is actually quite important in talking about both um, New York Jewish history, but also what I'm gonna talk about this evening, which is to say the um, experience of Jewish uh, soldiers in World War II. Uh, I saw a lot of hands go up um, uh, in terms of coming from New York, so that's great. How many of you did the trip? or the trips? For CSP. For CSP, okay. So you all know some things, um, which is wonderful. Uh, and I'm, I'm gonna try to move relatively quickly to sort of pull things together with what I see as among the highlights of New York Jewish history. And somebody's phone? Um, no, okay. Uh, but if I'm, I'm moving a little bit too fast or whatever, sort of, you know, raise your hand on this. Okay. So when we think about New York, right, we often think about its distinctive architecture. And um, the Empire State Building is still standing, right? Um, it has become um, an emblem of modern 20th century urbanism. Um, but we also think about Wall Street. Right? When we think about finance capitalism, we think about Times Square as a site of culture. Um, we used to think about Fifth Avenue as a, a site of um, 
retail, retail elegance, Madison Avenue as a stand-in for advertising. I, what I'm suggesting is that um, New York often um, has its streets and places come to, to symbolize whole industries in terms of, of the United States. And if we extend it a little bit further, we might think about New York's strong support of liberal politics. Um, even as others think about Tammany Hall um, as the building representative of the, the Democratic Party's political machine. So these associations um, speak to New York as the largest city in the United States, its financial and cultural capital, as well as its political identities. New York, okay. However, these immediate symbols of Gotham address only obliquely the men and women who actually lived in the city, who worked and who built the city, many of whom came from somewhere else to do it. Right? So New York has long been a magnet attracting what New Yorkers euphemistically call out-of-towners, right? people who were born elsewhere, um, migrants and immigrants. They came and they still come to New York for varied reasons. Usually they come, of course, to find work. Sometimes they come to find freedom. Occasionally they come to find something loosely called opportunity, however they conceive of it. And they come from many, many different places. So many, in fact, that by the 19th century, Right? New York lacked a majority population. And this is really crucial, that there is no majority population in the city and hasn't been for a couple of centuries. Um, it has really shaped the, the culture of New York. It's a city that has been divided along religious lines, along racial lines, along ethnic lines, along class lines, and Jews are part of this complex mix. This photograph, by Lewis Hine, taken in 1905 um, on Ellis Island, I think epitomizes one type of Jewish immigrant who came, which is to say young women, um, who came mostly alone, uh, although statistically they made up a substantial percentage of Jewish immigration to the United States. Um, so, Jewish New York and city, the City of Promises project represented a collaborative uh, effort to recast the city, uh, the history of the city of New York by focusing on Jews who became New Yorkers. And this means putting the history of New York itself in dialogue not only um, with history of Jews, but also with American history. Um, so one other thing to keep in mind is that by the beginning of the 20th century, Jewish New York constituted the largest Jewish urban community in the world. And it retained that historical distinction throughout much of the 20th century. So in some ways, when you write a history of New York Jews, it's a little bit like writing a history of many Western European um, countries because Jews are a larger and more complex 
community than the, in New York than, let's say, the Jews of England, or of France, or of Germany, or of Austria, or of Hungary, or of Italy, right? You've got more Jews in New York City than you do in, in each of those countries. Um, and yet, you're not writing a history of a national group, right? Because in the context of New York, Jews are considered an ethnic group, they're considered a religious group, right? But um, they're, they're not considered a national group. In the context of American Jewish history, one needs to keep in mind that through um, up until the, the 1950s, um, 40, roughly 40% of all American Jews lived in New York. That, that was um, how concentrated it is. Okay, so if we think about City of Promises, it's worthwhile asking, what did New York promise? First, New York promised that Jews could live freely as Jews. That's a very important promise. And this promise begins in the 17th century when the first Jews arrived in New Amsterdam in 1654. Now, they're not exactly greeted with open arms. <laughs> um, Peter Stuyvesant, in fact, does his best to kick them out. Um, he, he doesn't want um, uh, Jews in the city, and he says, he writes back to, to the, his supervisors in, the, in Amsterdam, he says, you know, if I let the Jews stay, I, I'm gonna have to let all these other heathens stay, like Quakers, right? Um, and that means too much diversity. However, the 23 Jews that are deposited in New York, and those of you who went probably saw this, um, by the St. Catherine in, in New Amsterdam, didn't wait for an answer, right? They too wrote back to um, Jews living in Amsterdam, and especially wealthy Jews in the city, and they say, please intervene, because we don't want to be kicked out. And it turns out that there were Jews on the, the um, governing body of the Dutch West India Company, and they sort of persuaded them to say, you know what, they should be allowed to stay, and indeed they were. So Stuyvesant is overruled by his superiors. Jews are allowed to stay, they're allowed to own houses, to trade, to worship in private, um, but their poor must not become a burden uh, to the community. And this really represents the fragile beginnings of um, a type of um, security that Jews have. In truth, Jews end up in New Amsterdam fighting for additional rights. They want, for example, to stand guard along with the other burghers, a right they had in Amsterdam. It's a fight that they have to go through. A, a man named Asher Levy, who's a, a butcher, um, pursues this. Um, he, he, he's someone who, who does this struggle which accrues rights to Jews. However, when the British arrive in 1664, there are hardly any Jews there because it turns out that having rights is not enough. You gotta be able to earn a living. Um, and many of the Jews leave New Amsterdam for Newport, which is a more prosperous port there. But the British don't eliminate the rights. They, in fact, expand them. They let Jews worship in public, um, and you get the establishment of Sherid Israel, which is the first um, Jewish congregation in North America. Jews also win the additional rights. They win the right to vote, 
They win the right to hold office as a constable, which means they win the right as constables to arrest Christians right? if somebody is misbehaving. That's really unheard of at the time in the 18th century. Certainly no place else in the world do you have Jews with this level of, of rights, all right? Um, and it's, it's way before Jews gained these rights in, in London. As a result, gradually, throughout the 19th century, you begin to get more and more immigrants coming to New York City. And immigration increases the numbers of Jews, which changes the sense of security that Jews felt in New York. First of all, the Jews who are already in the city begin to worry about the newcomers. Right? Then they take to quarreling with the newcomers. And pretty soon, um, you get the multiplication of different congregations. Um, but as a result of these newcomers arriving, you also get a sense of security that comes just with numbers right, of Jews. Um, and throughout the 19th century, basically, as Jews come into the city, this is before the federal government takes over um, control of immigration, when they would come to the lower part of, of Manhattan, it was called Castle Garden, 70% of Jews who entered the city at that point um, decided to stay in the city. So some of them, of course, moved on, but a large majority stayed. So this is sort of what New York looks like at the beginning of the 20th century in comparison with other US cities and in comparison with um, European cities. As you can see, Warsaw is the largest um, city in, in terms of its Jewish population. Um, and New York in 1905 has um, double, more than double the number. Um, by 1927, you've got close to two million Jews in New York City and Warsaw is still only around 300,000. So uh, this is this tremendous change that occurs in the beginning years of the, the 20th century. Um, and Numbers, of course, don't tell the, the whole story, um, but I, I think it's important for them you to, to recognize what a, what a big concentration this is. It's, it's not typical of other cities, right? and it's not typical in general of, um, even though urbanization is something that happens to Jews in the, the modern world. In some ways, we might say that New York um, held the position um, of the capital of American Jews, and it also held the position of the capital of the urban diaspora in the 20th century. Okay. So this large number of Jews in New York led to a feeling that uh, New York itself was a kind of Jewish city, that everyone was sort of Jewish. That's, that's how a lot of New York Jews came to feel. It wasn't true, of course, but there were so many Jews in the city, and also because so many New York Jews lived in neighborhoods that, where they were in even higher concentration than the roughly 30% that they made up of the population, um, it, it had that quality. Um, as a result, 
New York Jews come to understand that there are many ways to be Jewish. So diversity is one of the things that accompanies security. There are lots of possibilities of how to be Jewish. And New York Jews also see the city as a place where they could express themselves. And because they see the city this way, they come to um, identify with the city, right? They absorb its ethos, right? Um, even as they're helping to shape the urban characteristics of New York itself, okay? This gives you a sense of the change in New York City Jewish population from 1905, 27. You can see the peak years of the middle decades of the 20th century. Um, and those years uh, are when many New Yorkers are actually coming to places like Los Angeles, um, but it's offset by the arrival of survivors of the Holocaust, so that the New York Jewish population really doesn't start to decline until the 1970s. Right? Um, now, I have said that New York Jews were the largest single ethnic group in the city. They are not the largest single religious group in the city. Catholics were the largest single religious group, but Catholics are divided. But there's Irish, there's German, there's Polish, right? There's, there's a variety of, of different kinds of Catholics, and then later there's Puerto Ricans as well. Um, so it, it, it sort of depends on how you, you start to, to slice up identities here. Um, outsiders, certainly, by the 1960s, see New York as a Jewish city, um, and it's often code, becomes code outside of New York. When you say you're a New Yorker, to say that you're, you're Jewish. The big decline, as you note, um, uh, comes by the 1990s when it drops to under a million and then rises back up again. Okay. So what else did the city promise in addition to security? The city promised work, a job. And in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, close to half of all Jewish immigrants sewed clothing. Um, in hundreds of small-scale sweatshops that disguised a, a really burgeoning industry that would soon become one of the nation's most important. The clothing industry was a key industry in New York, and by 1900, Jews owned 90% of the garment factories in the city, and they made up 80% of the workers in the city. It was an exploitive, oppressive, and rapidly expanding business with opportunities for both upward mobility and downward mobility. So this is not a typical sweatshop. This is considered a, a, a modern shop. Um, you see it has electricity. Um, the sweatshops didn't necessarily have electricity. They were in people's tenement homes and stuff. But the oppressive character of the industry leads the Jews who are working in the industry to go on strike. And by the beginning of the 20th century, you have Jewish women especially, single women, who are working. And in 1909, they, um, this is what has been called the uprising of the 20,000. And women 
were activists as radicals, as feminists, uh, also as mothers. Um, they are articulate in their uh, opposition to the, the Jewish men who own the shops, who are exploiting them. Um, and I think this, you know, the picket gives you some sense of, of the women uh, out there striking. They were extremely important in creating the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, ILGWU. They're not the only ones to go out on strike. The following year, the men go out on strike. The men work in uh, uh, cloak making and uh, rather than in shirtwaist and stuff. They're a slightly different part of the industry. But this is an industry that organizes um, uh, across specific tasks. So it's very different from older forms of union organizing. And one of the things that's crucial about this organizing is that it ends up bringing Jewish men and women together. So Jewish men and women work in the same shops, which is important. They end up struggling for the same goals of a decent, uh, decent pay, decent conditions. And then um, in 1911, you, uh, pardon? The fire. the fire, that's correct. 1911, you have the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, this was a, a factory that didn't sign with the union, uh, and it was a Saturday. Uh, the, it was filled with mostly young women, some men uh, working there. The, the building was a fireproof building. In fact, it's still standing. Did you go to see the building, the Ash building? Okay. Um, it's now part of NYU. Um, and uh, because there was no way to reach uh, the, the, the people who were uh, burning, um, they stepped out the window and they dropped. And for, yeah? Yes, okay, the, the, the doors were locked and, and the fire escape, the uh, escape stairs also crumbled um, under the weight uh, of people. The only people actually who survived were people who went up to the roof, right, which was uh, counterintuitive there. Um, 146 people died. Um, uh, most of them uh, were identified. Um, and this is a, a picture, a funeral for the shirtwaist fire victims who were unidentified. That, that was held in, in March of that year. What the fire does, though, is it also spurs investigations. Um, Al Smith uh, and Robert Wagner, who are at that point local figures, um, become involved in investigating factory conditions. And this leads to many important changes that um, uh, uh, will have an effect eventually across the United States um, and become national during the New Deal. Now, not everybody worked in um, the garment industry. As I said, roughly half of, of Jews did. Um, uh, their second largest area where Jews worked was in retail trade. Um, 
and Jews introduced pushcarts to the city of New York. Prior to the Jewish immigration, there were no pushcarts, and Jews bring pushcart selling, um, which is necessary because there's no place to store food, so you've got to go shopping every single day for what it is you're going to be eating. Um, and Lewis Hine, you know, takes this photograph, and you, you can see the types of um, food that's uh, available for purchase here. Okay. Now, the third thing that New York promised was a place to live. Mostly, it was a very overcrowded place to live. So this is a, a picture of five points in Manhattan. And did you go to that section? With okay, with Chinatown and stuff now, Italian area. Uh, it becomes the basis of what is going to be the Lower East Side. Um, the density when Jews are living there at the end of the 19th century rivals Bombay. Um, but it is a place to live. And it's also a place that, where people grew up. And this photograph by um, Rebecca Lepkoff, who grew up on the Lower East Side, sort of gives one a sense of the world as seen from um, the point of view of children. Um, there, another picture from the point of view of children is this one. This is one of my favorite pictures um, of a girl swinging up high um, in the shadow of the, of the bridge. It's a very much a concrete world um, that Jews lived in um, there. And it was a world nonetheless that had its own sense of, of freedom and possibility for kids um, without their parents watching them. Um, the, Lower East Side, because it's so crowded, um, is a place that Jews do their best to leave. And by the early 20th century, there are bridges that get built to Brooklyn. Um, there's rapid transit that takes them up to Harlem, uh, fresh air in the Bronx, um, hot and cold running water, you know, even a private toilet and a bathroom, all these things that they didn't have on the, on the Lower East Side. So here you have um, a photograph that Arthur Leipzig takes already in 1950, which is of chalk games uh, being played in, in Brooklyn, right, of kids. And, and you can see these are boys, right? So play was gendered um, there, especially out on the streets. A place to live becomes something that Jews continue to aspire to. And after World War II, this is a new vision that um, New York Jews have, right? 21-story skyscrapers, 16 minutes from Midtown, right? An entire suburb inside a suburb. Right? This is what New Yorkers desire rather than purchasing a house. Right? The idea of living in an apartment and using rapid transit to get to work is one of those ideals that New Yorkers hold on to. They resist investing their money in housing. Um, they prefer to remain renters. Uh, and it's not really until the 70s and 80s that, that New Yorkers decide that they're going to, to move out um, here. So Jack Parker, who built Parker Towers, was a Jewish developer, and he was promoting, in essence, suburban living in the city. Balconies, a view, uniform doorman, air conditioning, right? 
1962. Okay. okay, fourth thing that New York promised was food. Immigrants hadn't exactly starved in Europe, but they certainly did not have a very diverse diet. And they come to New York and they can change their diets um, and their attitudes towards food. So the pleasures that food can bring is suddenly available in abundance. New York has a lot of cheap food. Um, it also is the site for the growth of an enormous kosher food industry, right? The, the, the enormous amounts of fish are consumed because Jews eat a lot of fish, lots of chickens that are slaughtered um, in the city. Um, it becomes the center of the nation's baking industry. Uh, so uh, food is really an, an important element uh, of it. And for the, one of the other things that um, New Yorkers develop is the idea of eating out which was not something that they did in Europe, these immigrants. So they come to the Lower East Side and they begin to see these um, small-scale restaurants um, that become sort of the, the basis for the New York um, deli. And in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, delis were ubiquitous around New York and identified with, um, with its food. Delis, of course, are meat-based, and because of kashrut, Jews develop as well dairy restaurants. So you, you get um, appetizing stores, as they're called, that specialize in, in fish and um, uh, cheeses and stuff um, to complement the delis, which are meat-based. And then gradually, you know, in the in the 1960s, as the numbers of delis begin to decline, delis begin to um, cease to be uh, kosher and begin to offer both meat and milk together. But initially, this, this dual system um, is, is established. And Jews could enjoy a fresh roll in coffee each morning for pennies. Finally, I mentioned jobs, but um, clothing. <laughs> I think New York provides um, a, a sense of style and clothing. Uh, Jews very quickly trade their old world clothes for the latest ready-made styles. I put this picture up because they begin to invent new styles like brassieres. Okay, so the brassiere is invented by Enid Bissett and Ida Rosenthal um, in the 1920s. Um, 1922, because of the change of style with these sort of uh, flapper styles that were more flat-chested, um, and hence the name maiden form, right? She began to create these, she created these bras which she gave away with each dress that she sold and then realized, oh, no, these are popular in, without the dresses, and so she just began to manufacture them. And this ad campaign um, was launched in 1949 and it ran for 20 years, which is a really long time. I, I dreamed I walked, right? It was all kinds of crazy things, right? I dreamed. But for, for 20 years, you had these ads with um, women in their maiden form bras. Okay, now, all right, Hunter College. So these are pretty basic promises. 
but they accompanied some more elusive ones. For example, New York City promised free public education from elementary to secondary, all the way through college. You could do it for free in New York. It's a promise, actually, that is no longer available to all New Yorkers. Now, granted, in the years before World War I, relatively few could take advantage of this magnificent offer. But then, um, you know, more certainly could take advantage of high school, and increasing numbers, especially after World War II, took advantage of a free college education. As, as the city system expanded here. Some immigrants, especially women, thought the city promised them the freedom to choose a spouse. Right? I mean, matchmakers also immigrated. Right? <laughs> Shadchans came across the ocean as well. But um, it, was, it was an opportunity that, that many uh, immigrant women, at least the ones who often had an a chance to reflect upon why they wanted to, to come to the United States, talked about they didn't want an arranged marriage, right? They wanted to be able to pick their own, their own spouse. Um, and I think we could generalize from this to say that the city promised personal freedom and also a chance to pursue different gender norms as well as other forms of sexuality. Still others rejoiced in what they imagined was a promise of uncensored language, both written and spoken, published and on the stage in multiple different tongues, Yiddish, Hebrew, German, Ladino, English, right? I mean, all these different languages. Um, this was a, a very important promise because the freedom in New York of the press and the stage, etc., ends up traveling back across the ocean. Um, the first Yiddish papers that are published in New York um, are much more free and influential than the ones that are under uh, censorship by the Tsars. Um, same true with, with the Yiddish stage um, and vaudeville. So Al Jolson, that's from the, the famous movie The Jazz Singer in the picture here, and Bertha Kalish was a Yiddish um, theater uh, actress, uh, stage uh, actress there. Um, Finally, then there were some Jews who come to New York and they see that the city's kind of rough democracy hold, uh, held, I should say, a promise of solidarity among working men and women, as well as the opportunity to change a, a cruel capitalist system. So we see here uh, garment workers parading on May Day, um, they are um, also supporters of extending the vote to women. New York extends the vote to women, the New York State that is, um, in 1917, a couple of years before it happens um, in the United States. And uh, this ethos seems for many Jewish men and women to be uh, one of its promises. There was, in New York, uh, for many years, competition between capitalism and socialism. 
between, uh, sort of epitomized here, between the Forvitz building, right, and the Yarmolovsky Bank. Can you tell the difference? Yes? No? We went to see you went to see them. Okay, so you saw the, the, the you know, so you know that they're very close to each other, right? They're, they're really um, within two blocks of each other. So one of the things that's important about the bank in New York is that most um, Jewish immigrants and actually second generation Jews as well could not get credit at regular banks. And so immigrant banks were crucial for the development of an industry. But when banks failed in New York, um, or we might say when you have a failure analogous to the Lehman Brothers failure that happened not that long ago, you end up getting legislation to try to fix the problem. So Jewish involvement in banking in, in the city was actually um, quite important. Okay. All right. Now for some perhaps even more ambiguous promises. How should we assess the possibility that was available in New York to live without a formal, legally constituted Jewish community? Is this part of the city's promise? Did it suggest that Jews no longer needed to practice Jewish rituals or observe the Sabbath? Because certainly by the 19th century, the majority of Jews in New York are not observing the Sabbath. They're keeping their businesses open. There aren't enough synagogues to accommodate all of them. Um, and they're interpreting a kind of religious freedom um, as the freedom not to observe Jewish practices. Right? What you get in New York by the, really by the 1840s for sure, is congregationalism, factionalism, um, synagogues competing with each other for members. Um, they may share some similar uh, architects, uh, architecture, but they debate ritual. Um, and later when you get socialists, you have socialists asking the question, can you be a free thinker and still go to shul? Is that possible? Um, so some of the things that social scientists often point to as a uh, product of the end of the 20th century actually date back <laughs> to the 19th century in New York. We see these behaviors on, on the part of Jews. On the other hand, Jews in New York create alternatives to the synagogue. One of the first alternatives that they create is the B'nai B'rith, right? which means Sons of the Covenant. Um, it's a fraternal society, uh, and the main point of this fraternal society, in addition to uh, providing insurance, which you couldn't buy in those days, um, in case you died, and, and so that you were buried, and you, your wife had um, something to live on, was it provided fellowship. The, the lodge room was going to be open all the time, not like synagogues. Um, you weren't going to have to fight in the lodge room over 
issues of ritual and, and religious conflict. Um, this was going to be a, a place for men um, to get along. It's one of the first innovations, in fact, this kind of secular synagogue that Jews um, export back to Europe. So by the 1870s and 80s, you have B'nai B'rith lodges in Germany and Austria, and actually also in Palestine. Um, a very important innovation. Um, you get in New York as well religious figures who are paid employees of congregations. This is another new innovation. In Europe, rabbis um, aren't employees of congregations. Uh, they are, uh, we, we would say, uh, employees, so to speak, of the community, and they're, they're uh, paid by communal taxes, but not in New York. So um, Gershom Mendes Sejas is the first um, uh, American-trained and educated leader. He was not a rabbi, but he was the leader of uh, Sherit Israel. Right. And you get an enormous diversity of religious expression in New York. Um, so this is an example from Central Synagogue um, with different points of view. You'll notice in this synagogue here, did you go to Central Synagogue? Okay, so you saw it. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous synagogue, but it's set up like a theater, right? <laughs> where, you, where everybody faces front and the arc is at one direction and okay, um, it's really beautiful. Um, it has an organ for music, um, pews for the members and stuff. Um, the style, which is called Moorish, was adopted by uh, other, uh, other groups of Jews as well. So did you go to Eldridge Street too? Okay, so Eldridge Street retained the Orthodox uh, mode, but it too is an example of a Moorish style synagogue, but it's got a balcony for, for women. Um, it has the bima in the center, right? So you're, you're getting these diverse types of um, religious forms of expression here. Okay. So one of the things that New York Jews do, certainly in the 20th century, is that they begin to shape aspects of American culture. Um, and this is just an example um, with West Side Story because it, it's created by um, four gay Jews, right? Jerome Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence, and, and Stephen Sondheim. And they take what had been initially proposed as an East Side Story and they transform it into West Side Story. Um, so in West Side Story, you get a Jewish story that is now being told through other protagonists, through Puerto Ricans and through Irish. Um, and that kind of New York story um, is uh, part of what these men saw as um, what it meant to be Jewish in America um, and how to identify with, with New York as, as part of that. And then, of course, New York Jews retain a, a sense of responsibility of Jews for one another. It doesn't disappear. 
unlike Sabbath observance, but it does continue to flourish. Um, charity is organized by women as well as men. It's an example of Passover on, at Ellis Island. Um, and efforts to help um, Jews outside of the United States, especially in the 20th century where the, many of the major Jewish organizations um, the, become centered in New York, such as the Joint Distribution Committee. So I'm looking at the clock now and realizing that we're running out of time. Um, I have a bunch of photographs that are t were taken of New York that I could just show you quickly. Um, so I'm going to do that, and just to give you a, a sense of what the texture of New York Jewish life was like, um, or New York life more broadly. Okay, so here's Rebecca Lepkoff, right, shot on the Lower East Side. Um, Ouija's, Naked City, right, this is another vision of New York, Ouija's a Jewish photographer. Um, yeah, this one is from 1937 uh, here, and here's another one from 1937 um, with the cop spoils the fun. So turning on the, the fire hydrant was a very popular thing to do in New York when it was hot in the summertime, especially for kids who couldn't go away to camp. This is a, a photograph by Sid Grossman. Um, taken in 1947 uh, of the Italian street festival uh, that was held down on the, um, in the Italian section of the, of the Lower East Side. Um, that's, uh, that patisseria is actually still, um, still in existence. Um, 1940, a shot by Lisette Modell, another um, photographer, immigrant photographer who comes to New York. This is a reflection taken on Delancey Street here. Leonard Freed, um, this was uh, from the mid-50s or a little bit before, uh, gives one a sense of the world of Hasidic Jews that becomes much more visible in New York after World War II because of all of the uh, refugees that have come uh, during the war itself. Yeah. Streets of New York, Vivian Cherry, another Jewish photographer, um, and this was, a, you know, this is from uh, Midtown. You can see, it's 34th Street. You can see the Empire State Building in the background there. So this is the, the uh, east side of 34th Street. Same time period, mid, actually 58, Saul Leiter um, starts to experiment with color photography um, and the ways in which the city fractures um, one's perception uh, using yeah, the, the mirrors and reflections that, that occur here. Um, also from the mid-50s, William Klein um, taking a shot of a, um, a, a lunch counter. What? Oh, the price of the hamburger, 40 cents, yeah, okay. <laughs> but the, you get the sort of the sense of inside, outside the street, um, the men looking out from it. Um, by the time you get to the 60s, this is Gary Winogrand, um, who shot a, a lot of pictures on the Upper um, West Side. Uh, and um, here's another shot of um, the Upper West Side, the Franconia, um, and clearly, you know, he thought, it was funny, right? He's got the four garbage bags and he's got the four women and 
um, right? It's uh, catching, catching that dynamism there. Um, Helen Levitt takes pictures really starting in the, the late 30s all the way up into the 80s, but this is from the 70s, and um, she tended to take pictures up on what was called first Italian Harlem and then Spanish Harlem there, a laundromat, which is typical in New York. People did not have washing machines um, in their apartments. You had to take your laundry out. Um, just like people used uh, the subway. And Bruce Davidson goes and takes a whole series of uh, photographs of the subway in the 1980s, which is when the subway is considered a very dangerous place. He, in fact, he does get mugged on the subway, and he has, you know, he, but that's part of what attracts him to the subway, um, is it's, um, its sense of danger, and yet at the same time, the opportunity to find um, a measure of, of beauty and humanity in the subway itself. Um, so with that, I think I will end um, and open for questions. No, they didn't. They wore corsets, which were these tight things here, but they didn't wear bras. I mean, bras were much, are much more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. um, and when, you know, you're in the, the, the business of, of uh, making clothing, right, it, it makes sense to um, innovate a little Dr. bit. Dr. Moore, yeah. here. Ah, okay, oh, sure. When did the education, college education, you said it was only for a, a certain period of time. When did it become not free? When was it not free? In the 1970s with the fiscal crisis. Um, one of the things that happens um, in the 70s is New York City teeters on, on bankruptcy. And although there's absolutely no reason, in my opinion, and, and other historians have said the same thing, um, to charge um, uh, fees to go to City College, Brooklyn College, etc., the, the City University, there's resentment on the part of the bankers who um, uh, uh, hold bonds that there is a free college education. Um, in the early years, in the 70s, um, the, the fees that they charge just paid for hiring people to collect the money. That's, that's all it ended up covering. Um, but they've never gone back. Never gone back to a free system. Yeah. Uh, do you have any uh, comments about sports and New York Jews? Yes, yes, yes. I'm so sorry. I forgot sports. You know, that's, that's terrible. Um, so uh, Jews become very involved in uh, selected sports in the city. Um, in the immigrant period, it, these, these sports are boxing, um, which has an element of mobility. Boxing was a Jewish sport in the early part of the 20th century. Um, basketball is a very Jewish sport that is through the middle decades of the 20th century. In fact, you find writers um, talking about basketball players as um, having typically Jewish traits. It's a more intellectual sport. It's, I, I, it, it, you know, so there are certain um, attributes that are attributed to the sport that seem to be connected with Jews. And then, of course, baseball. 
Um, Jews didn't play baseball so much, but they were big fans of baseball. And New York had three teams, right? It had the Yankees in the Bronx, it had the Giants in Manhattan, and it had the Dodgers in Brooklyn. So th those three boroughs were the boroughs um, in the, the 20s, 30s, 40s um, that held the largest numbers of Jews, and Jews were big fans of, of baseball um, and the, the, the rivalries that occurred then. So those were sort of the, the major sports that, that Jews were um, involved with. Thank you for the question. Hi, thank you very much. Um, <coughs> You didn't mention anything about either Farband or Albert Ring, right. the fraternal orders that were so prevalent with, I think, in the early 1900s. Sure, you're right. Um, so I only mentioned the B'nai B'rith, and uh, the B'nai B'rith gets a lot of competition. Um, the Arbiter Ring is established in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, it's a socialist uh, fraternal society and uh, attracts a lot of immigrants as members. Uh, some of its um, Groups are formed based on Landsmannschaften, something else I didn't mention. Landsmannschaften are um, hometown associations. Uh, the Farband is much smaller um, as a Zionist uh, fraternal society. So one of the things that's interesting about um, uh, uh, New York Jews, which I also didn't mention, but since you're opening the, the door to it, is that in the 1920s, um, Jews develop cooperative housing, especially in the Bronx. And it becomes a site where these different organizations, um, the Amalgamated uh, Clothing Workers Union builds cooperatives, the Sholem Aleichem Society builds cooperatives, the IWO, which is a communist group, builds cooperatives, and there's a Farband cooperative there. I mean, there are a, a number of cooperative housing uh, projects that go up. Most of them don't succeed because of the depression. You know, they lose their financing and they become private. But the amalgamated um, cooperatives uh, do succeed and uh, um, become the basis for extensive public modes of public housing um, in the other boroughs as well, on the Lower East Side and in Brooklyn and, and eventually a couple in, in Queens. Although you, there was obviously the synagogue building, and um, was there also a phenomenon taking place as Jews came from the old country in the 1800s into the mid 20th century of Jews redefining themselves as cultural and secular Jews in the new country and really losing their their practice, their ritual practice as Jews, and the importance of, of, of keeping that as part of their Jewish identity? Yes, that's the short answer. The, the longer answer is that because there are so many Jews in New York City, um, they move into various neighborhoods where they are a substantial percentage of the population, anywhere from 
40 to 75, 80% of the population. So if you're living in one of these neighborhoods in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or even in parts of Manhattan, um, there's no need to observe because there are enough other Jews so that come Rosh Hashanah, you know, everybody closes the business and they're all walking there. You don't have to go to synagogue to feel that it's a holiday. Um, there are all these different kinds of Jews. You can just go, you know, walk the streets and you feel the Jewishness of it. Um, and I think that that makes for a kind of naturalness that Jews felt in New York. Um, you, they didn't have to do anything. Um, you, you could just be Jewish um, without feeling that there was a necessity to, uh, to actually do something. No. In general, I would say no. That, that if you're thinking about belief, no. Beliefs that New York Jews had were political beliefs. Um, so many of them believed in socialism. Um, that was a, a very strong belief. Um, many of them believed in, ultimately in what we would call a kind of liberalism. Um, later on in, in the uh, mid to 20th century, um, but a belief in God, I, I wouldn't say uh, not particularly. Now, on the other hand, you know, um, New York becomes a place where synagogues um, innovate. So you get, instead of the standard type of synagogue building like I showed you, you get in the 20s and 30s of these synagogues that, that have schools built in, you know, they're for the whole family, they have swimming pools. So you, you have a shul with a pool and a school, right? And it's like, uh, you know, I, I mean, so it's meant to um, attract everybody in the family. It's not just for men as a place for them to, to pray. So these are interesting innovations that the, the synagogue creates, right? the Jews create, yeah. We have time for one more question. Well, it's not a question. Oh, great, it has to be a question. You are, well, since, you're, since you are a New Yorker for many generations here, you can, I'll give you a quick moment. Okay. It's just that I feel New York, there's a feeling of Hamishness there when you go. My grandson about 10 years ago is living uh, near the Second Avenue Deli, and he said, you know, why don't you go down there and have some lunch? So I was standing, and there was a long line outside the deli, and a waiter comes outside and gives everybody standing on line some food to eat while they're waiting. You never see that anyplace else. Okay, you're, you're right. There is a kind of Hamishness, a, a, a homey feeling um, to New York, and I think that that's part of what um, makes, makes New York different. And your story about the Second Avenue Deli is great. You didn't address the... Uh German Jewish, right. uh, European Jewish situation. The reason I was not from New York is because my uncle's boat was sent to uh, Galveston, Texas by the German Jews, I do believe. Is yes. that correct? Yep. Okay, so the, the Galveston movement is a movement that lasts for 14 years, and it's an effort on the part of the largely German Jewish leadership um, or Central European Jewish leadership would be more accurate, who are um, well-to-do and prosperous um, in New York to try to solve the problem of overcrowding. 
um, in the city. So uh, they had already tried to send people out of New York to settle, I don't know, in Sioux City, Iowa, and stuff like that, um, using B'nai B'rith, and that wasn't working. So Galveston was a, a program where they, they took people from Europe, and they didn't let them land in New York. They, they sent them to Galveston, Texas, um, and then from Galveston, they weren't going to stay in Galveston, they, they distributed them um, to other parts of, of the United States. The most successful part of the Galveston program was when they sent them to places like Denver or, or other sort of growing cities. Um, when they sent them to the very small towns, it was really difficult uh, for them to, these immigrants to find employment and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it lasts for around 14 years. And, yeah. You talked uh, uh, briefly, you talked about how uh, New York shaped the Jewish community, and you talked about how the Jewish community shaped New York. And one of the things we tried to do on our trips to New York was to understand this history. Many of us followed what you were talking about because we've actually st we've stood in the Lower East Side, looked at the buildings and uh, Upper West Side and the, and, the, and the boroughs. So my question is, is the Jewish community in New York still shaping world Judaism? From your perspective? Um, so that's a good question. I, I would say, I mean, in the 21st century, you're thinking. Certainly in the, in the 20th century, even as the population was declining, the, the Jewish feminist movement really originates in New York City, and that has an enormous impact on, on world Jewry uh, and continues to reverberate. Um, I think that there's a measure of experimentation that goes on in New York, um, but it, it's really hard as a historian looking back, let's say, f from, for the last decade or so, if New York is, is having the same impact because New Yorkers have spread out to lots of other parts of the United States. And so you have really interesting innovation occurring um, on the West Coast, right? Um, with certain new types of institutions. Um, and a number of the major organizations that used to be headquartered in New York have uh, declined and, and really don't exist much anymore. Um, so that's, that's tough. As a, as a historian, doing recent history is not such an easy thing um, uh, to do. And that's what you're asking me, you know, uh, to what extent does it still uh, exert an, an impact. Uh, one of the things that you've had in New York, of course, have been Jewish mayors of the city, um, which is different. Um, and I didn't speak about that either, right? But you've had three different mayors, Beam and, and um, Abraham Beam and Ed Koch and, and then um, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg. And each one has been very different. Uh, uh, that represents a kind of Jewish engagement in politics that uh, is different from the, the earlier, earlier period. So I'm, what I'm saying is, it's, I don't know if, if I can pinpoint anything specifically New York that would have an impact, you know, other than ongoing cultural 
uh, right, because you still have legitimate theater that's basically centered in New York City. You still have um, publishing, right? It's centered in New York City. You s what? You still have the financial industry, right? That's centered in New York City and stuff. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. If uh, you attended any of our New York trips or are, or are a New Yorker by birth, please join us for a quick photo. And then we'll see you tonight, hopefully, 715.